Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, here we go, Studcast fans. It's David Summers, and here comes another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession over 100 years ago. So now we step back into the ring and back into time. Let's get wall to wall and treetop tall with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. In the Great Smoky Mountains, what's going on, stud? Jeez, pretty man. It's lovely. Uh, had some beautiful days lately. Uh, felt kind of like being back down there in the Florida. No, <laughs> uh, and uh, but you know it's a little cold today again. Uh, we're uh, we're just trying to deal with it a little bit to get that springtime all the way set in here, and I guess we're going to get there. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes, sometime pretty soon, looks like to me. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we'll get to a little more spring, a little longer days starting this weekend. This is when we spring forward. We'll move our clocks ahead one hour before we go to bed Saturday night, and then the next day we'll get a full extra hour of daylight at the end of the day. So we will spring forward this That's coming weekend. brought that up, Dave. I might have missed that, man. You know, it wouldn't be the first time I've missed that. That go f- jumping forward. All right, well, we'll do the, do our best to keep you on time in the future. Hey, listen, Stud, I tell you what, your Studcast have gone crazy with listeners since we started into the year 1979. Our audience has doubled. I remember about, about three months ago or so, Ron, you predicted this was going to happen. I knew it was coming because I've been saying this particular era, this point in time is really a sweet spot, especially for me and maybe folks my age that were really getting into what was happening back then. So I think you're in that sweet, sweet spot right now, just like you said was going to happen. Well, you know, I, I, I kind of thought it might, Dave, because uh, now we're talking about much more than wrestling cards and TV. We're discussing basically two territories, both of them flying high at the end of 1978. And uh, now uh, we're running into a little bit of nightmare months later. Uh, and that was going to ultimately change everything for Southeastern wrestling uh, and its wrestlers and its fans and basically its future. So the first 280 stud cast have kind of been filled with great stories and history. Uh, but the last nine stud cast are totally different, man. Uh, fortune was fading right into failure, man, at the beginning of the end of my dream of mm-hmm. uh, two great territories uh, mm-hmm. full of happy fans and full buildings from the Gulf Coast all the way into Kentucky. <laughs> so things have uh, 
things have uh, not gone sometimes uh, <laughs> as I wished, especially in this year, 1979. Well, what started happening to you in 1979 really might have been a first for any wrestling promoter or owner. What do you think? Oh, man, it was it was definitely a first, man, for any wrestler or promoter, especially one strong enough to be in the National Wrestling Alliance. I mean, you think being in the NWA, you're not going to have any problems. So we're now kind of in the month of March uh, 1979. And before we get to the end of this year, I will have gone from having two territories and running 13 cities a week down to seven and from 34 wrestlers down to 14. So I'll have competition in both territories before I'm going to end up selling one of them. And uh, small wonder <laughs> that our listening audience is, is kind of exploding. This story is real wrestling history, man. And uh, no one before me in the sport that I'm aware of ever experienced anything like it. Wow. So what really makes it even more unique is while all this was happening, you were dealing with your father's memphis territory taking your best wrestlers while you were developing some of the greatest young talent in the sports history so the title for this one this studcast number 290 this is number 290 can you believe 290 of these wow (laughs) yeah it's a perfect example of that it is called hulk arrives and blackwell turns that's a good point dave for darn sure uh you know uh uh, David Schultz, uh, Hulk and Blackwell, baby, they were definitely destined for greatness. And, uh, there was also guys like David Schultz, uh, and, uh, the future honky tonk man, both were in the territory just about the same time. Schultz has been there for a while. Honky tonks just arriving. And, uh, both of those two guys were trained by my grandfather's, uh, brother, uh, Herb Welch and, uh, both of them. Headed, both of them are actually in the Hall of Fame already. So there's also, <laughs> besides those guys, we got the guys like Dick Slater, uh, Kevin Sullivan, Robert Gibson, a uh, future rock and roll fame in the mix as well. So, yeah, you know, we might have been bad things going on, but we were training some really great wrestlers. Uh, it's good for the future of the, of the entire business. Oh, for real. That's And that's just a few of the many that would follow, like – Arn Anderson, Mr. Olympia, Brad Armstrong, Lord Humongous. We could keep going on and on, but I'm pretty sure we've got a pretty long ride in front of us. So where are we headed today, Stud? Well, man, we're going to begin in the southeastern Gulf Coast with the arrival of a very inexperienced wrestler that's going to go on to become one of the most recognizable on earth, uh, Terry the Hulk Boulder. I'm talking about, and we're going to break down the Mobile, Alabama card of March the 14th, 1979. We'll talk about the TV that's going to promote that. Then uh, this TV is going to have the first ever match of the Hulk. Uh, and then, uh, then we'll give everybody the results of the card like we normally do and the attendances and all three, the major markets that, and they all three had the same card on this particular week in March. And then we'll do a quick update on who all by the end of this Monday night, uh, I mean, this Wednesday night in Mobile, Alabama, who all was now in the Memphis territory that had been working for me in uh, down there in the Gulf Coast. Yeah. So then we're going to ride north after we talk about the down south into uh, Knoxville with a great card there. And uh, there's another young star working in that territory, 450-pound Crusher Blackwell. 
And uh, he's about to get enough of his horrible treatment from Malenko and Roop and Bob Orton. And uh, Les Thatcher had him scheduled for the personality profile, though, to try and find out what was going on there. So we're going to talk about that. We'll discuss the results of that card there in uh, Knoxville in the same week in March and the attendance in the Coliseum. And then we'll have a quick update from Knoxville, also on the Memphis Territory and how that territory was doing. And we have enough time, man. After we do all that, we're going to answer another learning tree question. I am not surprised at all. It's another loaded, I mean loaded, studcast. I tell you what, let's get started with the Mobile, Alabama card. Wednesday night, March 14th, 1979. Well, the first match on that card, Dave, was Herb Calvert. And uh, he began by challenging everybody in the crowd. Uh, you know, anybody that wanted to come up and try to win five $100 bills, all they had to do was beat him. And uh, and uh, then, you know, uh, and then he was going to wrestle Armand Hussein, who was a pretty darn good wrestler himself and another newcomer down there in southeastern Gulf Coast. Uh, second match was punk rock Wayne Ferris, the future honky-tonk man. And he was making his second appearance in Mobile. And this time he was going to be against uh, one of my cousins, Roy Lee Welch, uh, the popular Ricky Fields and Terry Latham. Great tag team combination. Young boys was taking on Ken Dillinger and the mighty Yankee. Those guys had just arrived from southeastern Knoxville. Then the gladiator, Dick Steinborn, in just his third week in the territory, was facing another masked man. The always popular down there in that area wrestling pro. So you got two masked men against each other. Then the Southeastern Championship match was on the line. Champion uh, Dr. D, David Schultz, was defending against me. Uh, and I was down there. Bob was Armstrong was there last week, mm-hmm. wrestling Schultz. I'm there wrestling this week. <laughs> and then in the main event, the Southeastern Tag Champions, Jimmy Golden and Norville Austin, after sending both Don Carson and the Assassin packing the week before, there was a loser leaves cage match in which the team that lost both had to leave. And uh, and then on this week, since they're gone, uh, Jimmy and Norvell are going to be wrestling against Eddie Sullivan and Rip Tyler, another new team that's just down there in the southeastern Gulf Coast. And this match was going to be significantly changed during the upcoming TV that promoted this card. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, by the way, before we move on, how tall was Dr. D? He's about 6'5". Uh, yeah, I knew he was. I knew he was up there. So you're at six nine. He's at six five. That's a pretty good match right there. Yeah, yeah, with two pretty tall guys, no doubt. And uh, while David was tough, he was rugged, man. And uh, all you had to do is ask John Stossel about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think he would know. All right. Speaking of the TV. All right. So what was on that show? I noticed the Hulk was not on the Mobile card. Was he on the TV and? And was it the first time you'd seen him? Well, he, he was definitely on that TV, Dave. And uh, and it was the first time either Louie, who was the new booker down there, or I, either one of us saw him. And, uh, you know, we needed to meet him and uh, we needed to talk to him uh, about our plans for him. And uh, But most of all, we needed to see how capable he was in the ring. We didn't know anything about him. 
not even what he looked like. And wow, you know, he was pretty impressive when you first get a look at him. And uh, these first TV matches that he was going to be in down there were critical, man, in getting him over, especially since he had very little experience. And, uh, and as always with everything just about, the first impression is so important, and especially with wrestling fans, it's critical. So let's start at the top of the show. Because this TV was loaded with surprises, uh, great television, I think, uh, and you're going to find out as we go through this. Uh, the first, uh, it all started with uh, Eddie Sullivan, Rip Tyler. Uh, they were in only their third TV match. They went to the ring. They're in the first match of this TV show. And as they were wrestling, Billy Spears entered through the front entrance of the studio where fans came in at the front of the studio. He had never been in, he hadn't even been in the studio up to this point. And he went right straight to the set with Charlie Platt. So, uh, you know, and his Carson, his team of Don Carson, the assassin had lost in mobile three nights earlier. They were gone. They were already in Memphis. They were working in Memphis already. So, uh, so, you know, Billy's without a team, right? Uh, right. So, uh, Charlie was surprised to see him, and he, and he told him that, you know. And, he, and then he asked Spears, and I got to be there for this show because I'm wrestling in, the, in this particular week. And uh, so Charlie asked Spears uh, what he was doing here, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, especially, he says, uh, since you don't have a team anymore. Uh, so uh, Spears, being Billy Spears, you know, he was a cocky guy. You know, he says, uh, I'm here to take care of some business, Charlie. And, uh, you know, and about that time, Sullivan and Tyler won their TV match. And when they got out of the ring and started back into the dress room, Billy's over there on the set with Charlie. And Billy starts screaming for him, hey, come here, come here, come, you guys come over here. So once they got there, man, you know, he started lathering them down, I guess is a pretty way, with outrageous compliments <laughs> about what a great team they were and how much his mother loved what they did in the ring, you know. And then uh, Tyler and Sullivan, you know, had uh, they had known Spears for years, right? They had, All three of those guys been down in that Gulf Coast area for years. And they knew all the stories about Billy's mother. So Tyler just <laughs> came right to the point. He says, uh, well, just how much does your mother like what we do? How much does she like it? You know? <laughs> oh, boy. So I can see this one coming. So Billy Spears, what a little snake. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, you know, Billy, man, he, he boy, he grinned like a Cheshire cat, man. So uh, he asked if they wanted to be Southeastern Tag Champions. Right, you know, right. and he and he said, if so, you know, he goes uh, with my mama's connections. He said, uh, I, I can get you guys the belts, you know, and and all they had to do, you know, was uh, make make me your manager. So this time, Eddie Sullivan asked the same question that Tyler had just asked. He says, uh, OK, just how much does your mama like what we do? So, so, so Billy dug into his right pants pocket, man, of <laughs> one of those all-white suits that he always wore. And uh, thank goodness the cameraman got a real good close-up, and uh, and he pulled out a handful of thousand-dollar bills. Are you uh, seriously thousand-dollar bills? Yes, and you could see it on the camera that uh, there were thousand-dollar bills. 
And then uh, so automatically both Tyler and Sullivan's hands shot out of, right out of to his. <laughs> yeah, right? man. Like, count them out, count them out. So Spears counted out 10 of those $1,000 bills in each one of them's hand. Wow. So uh, the studio, they're watching all this, man. And when the bills came out and all this started, the studio just started booing them, man. And, uh, you know, they didn't care. Oh, good gosh. You, you could have. Well, Tyler and Sullivan was walking on water, man. They were just, well, they were just all over him. They were hugging him and patting him on the back. And there they took off to the dress room. Uh, yeah. Billy had got him another crew, man. <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I'd been dancing, too. All right, now that's how you start a TV show right there. So how do you follow that? Well, with the next surprise, I, I tell you, this TV show got a lot of surprises. And the next one was this huge wrestler that no one had ever seen before, six feet, nine inches tall and 300 pounds. And uh, when he came out of the dressing room, there was a little, you know, people in the uh, then the features in the studio would, you know, they're always talking a little bit. As soon as he came out, the, the, it went to silence in the studio. <laughs> it was like, and then when he got in the ring, uh, fans didn't know whether he was a heel or a babyface. They'd never seen him before, mm-hmm. and uh, and he was introduced as Terry the Hulk Boulder, and in less than about two minutes. Uh, it took him to, for him throwing his little opponent around, looking like he was wrestling a baby, you know, <laughs> throwing him all over the ring. And then he got him in the bear hug and, and he submitted. And uh, so and it was still silence in the studio when he got out of the ring, you know, and, uh, the, and they started carrying his opponent out. You know, the, the, the studio had just sat there. They were mouths were open like, wow. What? what is, who is this? What is this all about? Did this happen in the WTVY studio in Webb, Alabama? Oh, yeah, certainly did. See, I, I know I've seen this back a number of times, but I think I was watching it that day because we all went, whoa, what is this? So it obviously it sounds like he left everybody speechless, Dud. So didn't he start his southeastern career as a heel? Was there any indication of that? Oh well, I wasn't in that first match. Obviously, he didn't. Uh, you know, he didn't really heal. Mm. He just basically bumped the guy around a little bit and then <laughs> put him in a bear hug, and it was over with. That's all he had to do. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, but yes, he was a heel when he came, and okay. in fact. I have a video of a similar match to the one I just described, you know, that happened months after Hulk's arrival, mm-hmm. after he had turned babyface at this point, you know, and he had already come close to becoming at this point the NWA champion uh, because he had a controversial win over Harley Race in the football stadium in Dothan, drew the biggest crowd ever. Wow. This is just months after his arrival. Now he's a babyface. Yeah, I can't believe I was not at Rip Hughes Stadium. It's still there today, and it's legendary. They've updated just beautiful stadium now. But I remember that, and I think I was working that night as a youngster in broadcasting, so I couldn't go. So I tell you what, that is guaranteed one regret I'll always have. But I did watch that Hawk TV match just the other day. It's on your Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel. It was one of those new Short Rides with the Stud videos. I, th- I think it was short ride number 13. Amazing to see him in his very first year in the ring. So who was on the personality profile on this show? Well, the Southeastern Tag Champions, Jimmy Golden, Norvell Austin, 
They joined Charlie Platt. They did it live. And, uh, you know, that studio was kind of small. They were right over there sitting right next to the bleachers. Uh, fans were, you know, they could almost reach out and touch you uh, from where they were sitting. And Golden and Austin, they had seen the first match on the show. Uh, they watched the money changing hands between Billy Spears and and uh, Tyler and uh, Sullivan, you know, and uh, and they they witnessed him Billy buying his way back into Southeastern, basically, you know, he had lost his other team and he just he for twenty grand he's he back in business again, and uh, so then they watched the video of the cage match from Mobile, Alabama. The match in which Carson and the Assassin lost in the cage, the loser leave deal, and both of them had to leave. So uh, Jimmy was upset because of uh, what had happened earlier in the show. And he and Norvell just basically assumed that if uh, Billy lost his team, that Billy Spears would be gone, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden, Billy's back, you know? So, uh, they were prepared for this opportunity. They had a little bit of time to hawk match and that type, and they talked to each other. And so when they sat down, they had a plan here. And so uh, they were prepared for the opportunity, and uh, they were going to present another surprise in this TV show. So they proposed that uh, they add two new stipulations to their upcoming match with Sullivan and Tyler. There wasn't a championship match. It was just a regular tag match. They asked Charlie if he would find out before the show was over today if they wanted, uh, you know, they would, if, if they would be approved, if their idea that they were going to present would be approved by the Southeastern officials before the show was over. So then Charlie asked, well, okay, what is it you want? So they said they would be willing to make the upcoming tag a title match for the belts, and if they lost, the loser of the fall, whichever one, uh, them that lost, would leave Southeastern. But if Spears' new team lost, Billy Spears would leave Southeastern. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the studio popped on that one. <laughs> so, uh, so the, you know, and then Spears came charging out of the dressing room. You know, and the dressing room was just across from the ring there and across from where they were doing the personality profile. Right. And right. he came out of there screaming, <laughs> no, 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 I'm not going to do that. You know, you ain't getting rid of me like that, you know. And uh, But then Sullivan and Tyler, they came out, and they were trying to grab him to hold him back, you know. And uh, <laughs> But when they got over close to the set, they were going, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, basically. They were for it, and Billy was like, no, 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 I ain't going to do that. So, uh, you know, they had nothing to lose. If they won the match, they were going to be champions. And if they lost the match, Spears was gone. And they had $10,000 of his money in their pocket. There you so go. They were like, hey, we love it. Hey, let's do it. Seems like a win-win situation. So you were right about this TV. That's another surprise. So what a great idea from Golden and Austin. Was there any, any more surprises waiting on this TV show? Well, yeah, man. Uh, they rang the bell for the next match. And uh, and while, uh, you know, the two tag teams are just about to go face-to-face, head-to-head out there, they're trying to kind of pull them apart. Uh, the next wrestler out of the dressing room had not been on the TV there in months, and uh, nobody even knew he was in the building. And And who was that, stud? Uh, it was me, Dave. <laughs> so the studio, they were still laughing. 
at the crying Billy Spears, he's bawling over there, you know, uh, and he's being drugged away, you know, and they, they, they saw me and they were like, wow, they, they erupted, man, in cheers. I mean, they were happy to see me, man. It had been a long time. They had no idea I was there. So uh, I was there to meet Schultz the next week for the Southeastern Belt. And uh, so I had a match there. I took care of business, uh, one with the fuller leg lock. And then uh, Dr. D, David Schultz, he finished the show with another one of those brutal beating, beatings that Charlie had been telling me about. I got to see this one live, man. Mm -hmm. Poor guy, he wrestled. And uh, and his, uh, he had one of those signature endings for the TV shows that he is becoming famous for. He was pulverizing guys on the end of the show. So... Charlie closed the TV with an announcement about the decision from the Southeastern officials on that upcoming tag match. And he said it would now be a title match. And if Golden or Austin lost, they not only lost the belts, but the loser of the match had to leave Southeastern. And if Sullivan and Tyler lost the match, Billy Spears would be leaving Southeastern. <laughs> So Spears, here he came again, charging from the dressing room. Right. You know, they're about to close the show screaming. Tyler and Sullivan's trying to hold him back, you know, and the show went off the air. He's screaming, no, no, I ain't going to do it. I ain't going to do it. Well, he was going to do it. That's awesome. I, I used to love it when TV went in that way. That was a really good TV show, full of surprises. So what happened in Mobile the next Wednesday night? Herb Calvert opened the night uh, with a rare challenge, uh, you know, and he got a challenger, which was pretty rare at this point because he had left so many of those people that challenged him just beaten so easily, man. Nobody I've got near his $500. And uh, so I watched it. I always love to watch these matches, these shoot matches. And uh, and he just kind of toyed with this guy and before making him submit with a, just a simple wrist lock. He took a wrist lock, barred his leg, took him down on the face first, and the guy gave up, bam, it was all over. Then he and Armand Hussein wrestled to a really good 15-minute time limit match, a baby-faced draw. Uh, you know, uh, Calvert was a tremendous wrestler. Uh, Hussein, I never realized how good a wrestler he was. So, wow, I was really amazed at this, this match. Uh, so then Punk Rock, Wayne Ferris, uh, he danced around, man. He gyrated to his musical theme. He had the music. He was one of the first guys to have the music, right? And uh, it was right before he beat my cousin, Roy Lee Welch. So, uh, you know, he got to dance a little bit, too. And uh, Ricky Fields and Terry Latham, they won their match with Ken Dillinger and the Mighty Yankee. I won by disqualification over David Schultz. Got my hand raised, but I didn't get the belt. Can't win it on a DQ. And then the last match, wow, it was really good, man. Had a tremendous amount of heat. Golden and Austin were on their way to winning the thing. And uh, David Schultz, after he had wrestled me, he ends up back out there at the ring again. It was the third week in a row uh, that David Schultz had gone into the ring uh, to attack Norvell Austin three times in a row. When the referee mm. went down, Schultz went straight to the ring. He attacked Norvell. Uh, Eddie Sullivan and Rip Tyler and Billy Spears, all three of them jumped on Jimmy. Uh, he had had some stitches in his eye from the week before. They popped him there again, and uh, they covered him, and, and they beat him. So Schultz and Sullivan and Tyler 
and Spears, man, all four of those guys, they experienced one of those famous Mobile riots, man, to close out the show, man. Uh, Jimmy Golden got helped back to the dressing room by Norvell. Ricky Fields came and helped. Terry Latham came to help to get him back. And uh, Jimmy was gone. Uh, he was he was he was leaving uh, for Memphis the following Monday night. He was going to be resting in Memphis, and he wasn't going to be seen in the Gulf Coast for another year. Wow! Wow! All right. So, how about the attendance in those three major markets, including the beautiful Bay City of Mobile? Montgomery had uh, twenty eight hundred. Uh, Dothan had thirty two hundred, and Mobile had forty one hundred. So uh, it was down by just about a thousand fans from the mm-hmm. week before. Uh, and that's when all three of those cities combined. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's about $300, 300 people less in each one of those, yeah. those three cities. Wow. Dothan's still holding strong, even, even better than Montgomery, which is a little bit surprising, but mobile obviously is, is uh, really the winner there. All right. So I think you said, we would get some kind of an update on how many Southeastern Gulf Coast wrestlers were now in the Memphis territory. How about that? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't really like talking about this part of it, but gosh, it's true. And, uh, you know, it's, it's part of what was going on in 1979. So in, a, in the two months, uh, you know, about eight top stars were gone to Memphis. The two months since my brother went first. Uh, he was followed by the Mongolian Stomper and Gorgeous George Jr. Then Tony Charles went. Then Buzz Sawyer went. Uh, Don Carson went the week be- last week, uh, the week before. And uh, the assassin, Randy Colley, uh, they, he went. And now Jimmy Golden was going. So it would have been absolutely devastating to any territory to lose eight stars of that quality in a two-month period of time. Hmm. No one. But that was basically 1979 for me, man. It was like wow. it wow. was a struggle. Wow, the struggle is real, Stud. So what a great first half of this Studcast. So when we return, we're going to find out more about Crusher Blackwell's problems and we'll focus on the Knoxville card of March 11th, 1979. That is coming up when this Studcast continues right here. Hey, Studcast fans, were you aware that 43 two-hour Super Studcasts are on Rod's website at tnstud.com? More than 43 different stars of the sport. Most on live with Ron. Some Super Studcasts have more than one star. For only $2.99, you can find out more about your favorite wrestlers than you ever imagined. Take an unforgettable ride with the stud. Go to tnstud.com. Click on Super Studcast. And for less than $3, begin your ride into wrestling history today. The stars of the sport await you. Saddle up for real fun at tnstud.com. Welcome back in, Studcast fans. It is episode number 290. The Hulk arrives and Blackwell turns. Okay, so why don't we begin the second part of the Studcast with the card in the Knoxville Coliseum, Sunday afternoon, March 11th, 1979. Okay. Uh, opening match was Charlie Cook against uh, Big Tony Peters from uh, the Tri-City areas up there in Tennessee. Uh, Terry Gibbs was taking on Ron Wright, also out of the Tri-City areas up there in Tennessee. Ted Allen was up against uh, 
fast rising star who had just come from the WWF in New York, uh, Mr. Fuji, uh, a great, great wrestler. Uh, there were, uh, there was a special six man tag on this card. Kevin Sullivan, Ken Lucas, and me. Uh, we're going to be wrestling against the great Malenko, Bob Roop, and Crusher Blackwell. Uh, then the main event was for the Southeastern Championship. Ronnie Garvin had regained his belt in the cage match the week before against the great Malenko, and he was going to be defending his title this time against Bob Orton Jr. Hmm. Okay, so that card has two really great matches for sure, but I noticed there are only five matches again as compared to the six usually in Gulf Coast. Well, you're correct about that, Dave. And uh, we talked a little bit about that last week. And uh, the first three of those five matches were not only uh, not only just the three rather than probably four matches it should have been, but they were very weak uh, competitors as well. So it was really becoming clear that Louis Toilette, you know, the Gulf Coast booker at this point, uh, even though he had inferior talent, he was holding his own against Bob Roop, uh, the Tennessee booker. So uh, I'd be having another conversation with Roop about it. <laughs> That's the way it worked out, man. All right, so we know what was on the Gulf Coast TV show. How does this Southeastern Knoxville TV show compare to that? Well, I'll let you decide, Dave. You know, uh, it opened with Ronnie Garvin sitting next to Les. Uh, he had the Southeastern belt in front of him. He had just won it back in the cage. Uh, they watched the cage match from the Sunday before. Uh, this time, uh, because it was a cage, there was no interference outside or inside. Uh, Garvin won and regained his title from the great Malenko. So uh, then Les invited him to stay with him at the set to, to watch his next challenger for his belt. Bob Orton Jr. was going to be wrestling in that very first match. So Orton didn't take long to prove, man, that he deserved a shot at the Southeastern belt, uh, especially when you think about it. He already was the Southeastern tag champion, so he had an opportunity to hold both belts, which is extremely rare. And uh, so during this match, Les and Garvin uh, got into all kinds of conversations and uh, talked a little bit about uh, – about Orton, basically, but then they got into a conversation about the personality profile, the one that was scheduled for later in the show that day. And uh, Les hadn't forgotten last week's profile, in which uh, Ronnie was in last week's profile, and uh, and it ended up by Ronnie asking Les why he didn't bring Crusher Blackwell on and find out what the heck's going on between Blackwell and Malenko and Bob Roop and and Bob Orton. So uh, Les told Ronnie that uh, he had caught Blackwell coming into the studio today by himself earlier in the day, and he invited him to be on the profile for that very purpose. Basically, I'm going to get that done today, Les was telling. And about the same time as they finished that conversation, Bob Orton Jr. gave his opponent Wow, he had an extremely, oh, it was a tarifying looking move. He, uh, it was called, a, I call it an inverted pile driver. He turned the guy, instead of putting his head between his knees, he turned it around and put his face down there, and then he pile drived him that way, uh, body, belly to belly. <sighs> wow, <laughs> it was, it was horrible looking. So he, he gave this, his opponent uh, one of these inverted pile drivers. <laughs> 
you know, and uh, and there sits Ronnie watching this match, and then he covers him, and he got a count of two, and then he jumped up, and and when he did, he pointed at Garvin. And Les told me kind of what was on this show, and he pointed at Garvin, who was sitting with him, man. And then he picked this guy up, and the guy's unconscious. He had to just his limp body, and he started putting him in a position to give him another one of these. He's already knocked out. So Ronnie just left the set, man. He went straight to the ring. Wow. And uh, Gordon Orton dropped the, the guy, you know, at this point. Uh, and uh, and he, he left the ring, obviously. I don't think he wanted to deal with Garvin right there. And uh, several minutes after that, Les said, was spent, uh, they had to hold up the, the, the tape uh, because uh, they had to remove this injured guy, man, for, uh, before the second match could get started, before they could continue again. Wow. So – so then uh, the next next match featured, man, the new Japanese sensation mayor from WWF in New York, Mr. Fuji. And uh, so Ron Wright, uh, without being announced, just goes to the set with Les and has a seat, you know. And uh, and he's, he was about as consumed with desire to, uh, to, to get to Mr. Fuji to allow him to be his manager as Billy Spears was 500 miles to the South with Tyler and Sullivan on the other Southeastern TV show. So Wright got Mr. Fuji to come to the set after his win. And, uh, and he was just as successful basically as Spears down South, but he didn't pay for it. Like Spears did. He didn't give him money. He used his mouth rather than his money. And, uh, and, Ron Wright, sweet, talked his way. I'll get you, son. I'm going to teach you how to give him a good Tennessee dog whooping. <laughs> you know, and uh, he talked his way into managing Mr. Fuji, who was one of the hottest wrestlers in the world at that time. <laughs> okay, Stud, if I'm right, I think we're headed to the personality profile. This is what we've been waiting for with Crusher Blackwell. Well, Les told me when he called me later uh, down in Alabama, uh, he knew I was down there at the other TV that he had hadn't uh, he never really got the chance in the personality profile to speak to Blackwell. He said Crusher came to the set for the live profile in front of the crowd and uh, and he got mic'd up. And uh, and then before they went to him and they gave him, you know, turned the light on and started recording him, Malenko and Rupin Gordon, all three of them came to the set. They jerked the microphone off of, uh, of Blackwell and they they literally drug less than they literally drug 450 pound Blackwell out of the studio. They took him totally out of the studio. So. Uh, so <laughs> crazy, huh? Are you kidding, Ryan? They wouldn't let him talk, so what did Les do? Well, he got up, man. He tried to stop him, you know, but it was three against one. And then, <laughs> and as soon as they all left the studio, uh, Ronnie Garvin has kind of saved the day, man. And and he came out to the personality profile set. Mm -hmm. and the, the studio crew mic'd him up, and uh, and he did the personality profile. Wow. Okay, so what did Ronnie have to say? Well, Ronnie had evidently been doing some investigating into Blackwell's life. Uh, and he had even visited Crusher's childhood home in Stone Mountain, Georgia, right there in the suburbs of Atlanta, where his elderly mother was still living. 
And, uh, and obviously Ronnie sat with her and Ronnie told Les, he said she told me that the family had always been poor and that Jerry was a great son, that he was sweet and kind with a heart of gold and that he had grown into this giant of a man. He was strong as a bull and, uh, and that he had kept their farm from being repossessed after his father died, mm -hmm. which was years earlier. Mm-hmm. So uh, he said basically that, uh, you know, Jerry had, she said Jerry had become a wrestling fan. And, uh, and he got discovered by a local wrestler named Jody Hamilton, who happened to be one of the original assassins of the Georgia fame. Same assassin that wrestled so many times in Knoxville. Uh, and uh, that Jody had not only uh, took an interest in him, but he trained him. And that... Uh, Recently, uh, she told uh, Ronnie that three wrestlers showed up at their farm and they offered Jerry some money to go with them to become a professional wrestler. And she said, uh, she told Ronnie, I haven't seen or heard from him since. Wow. So, you know, less huh. so uh, the, the studio audience, uh, you know. Less than the studio audience, I'm sure even those at home were pretty much astounded at this. I mean, like, what the heck is this all about? So then Les thanked Ronnie for the information and, uh, and said things were a lot clearer now. His only question now was uh, that this news, since he got this news, that uh, what is going to happen tomorrow in the Coliseum when Crusher Blackwell is supposed to join the great Malenko and Bob Roof in a six-man tag? Against Kevin Sullivan, Ken Lucas, and Ron Fuller. <laughs> yeah, that's what I want to know. So let's get the TV ended and find out, stud. Let's do it. Well, well, well Dave, uh, you know, uh, there's more to this story yet to come in this TV, you know. So <laughs> the next match was the six-man tag with Kevin Sullivan, Ken Lucas, and myself against three pretty unlikely, <laughs> unlucky guys, too. You know, uh, we didn't take any pity on anybody. Uh, the match was over pretty fast, and uh, I can darn sure tell you that, man. They didn't have a chance. And then all three of us went to the set, and we did an interview about what was going to happen the next day in this now crazier-than-ever six-man tag now that we knew what was really going on, more about it anyway. And, uh, and in the interview, none of us really had any idea what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know who's going to show up, who's not going to show up, so – the last match on the TV show was Ronnie Garvin, and uh, he was wearing, he went to the ring wearing his newly regained Southeastern belt, uh, and he was going to be wrestling against another very unlucky wrestler. And on the end of that match, Ronnie jumped off the top rope in his throat. He covered him for the count. Well, when he covered him for the count, the great Malenko, Bob Root, and Bob Orton Jr., all three of them hit the ring. Uh, they threw the referee over the top rope, and they all three started to work on Ronnie Garvin. And the studio went berserk, obviously, and even more, they went even more berserk when Crusher Blackwell slid into the ring. And he got between the three of those guys and Garvin. And he was basically challenging them to come on, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so they surrounded both of them. And uh, they were just about to, to head in and, and start to lock up with Blackwell and then go back to beating up Garvin. And me and Lucas and Sullivan, we all went to the ring. And, uh, wow, it was kind of pandemonium in the studio. <laughs> so the last interview went to Malenko, Roop, and Orton. And uh, 
you know, we had already done our little say, and uh, and uh, they, you know, they were they were like. Uh, Les told me they were like wild men. They were screaming over top of each other. He said you could only get some points here and there. You could make out something somebody was saying. And he said he picked up something like uh, that there was a lawyer's document that Blackwell couldn't wrestle against any of them hmm. without forfeiting the family's farm <laughs> and something about his mother going to be tossed out of her home. Oh, my God. And Les said the studio <laughs> audience was just, they never stopped booing. He said uh, until the close of the show, <laughs> even after they left with the interview, they kept booing. What? He said they, <laughs> hey, I tell you what, I, I, after the Gulf Coast TV show earlier, I, I didn't think that there was any way that Knoxville's TV show was going to beat it. So, But now I'm not not so sure. All right, let's get to that Coliseum show that was slated for the very next afternoon. Well, Charlie Cook in the first match beat Tony Peters. Uh, Ron Wright uh, won over Terry Gibbs. Uh, Mr. Fuji uh, with his new manager, Ron Wright, man, he was right there with him the very next day. You know, and uh, Fuji got his third Knoxville win, and he got it over Ted Allen, who's a pretty decent wrestler, trainer of uh, Arn Anderson. Uh, Six-man tag uh, was – through the roof while me, Kevin, and Lucas went to the ring first. The great Malenko and Bob Rube came to the ring with no pressure Blackwell. Coliseum exploded as soon as they came out of the black curtain in the back and they were by themselves. You know, and then when when they got into the ring, uh, the mask invader, Bob Orton Jr., uh, under the hood, <laughs> came down to take Blackwell's place. He came down to join him. So we were going to be against three guys. And, uh, boy, this time when they saw Orton coming with the hood on, the, you know, they started to boo, man. They booed him all the way to the ring. <laughs> you couldn't even hear him announce him, man. Uh, so then the match was wild. There was hardly any tags in and out. I mean, all six of us were in the ring. It was like a tornado match. For most of the entire match, it was just all six of us fighting. And uh, on on the end of the match, the invader, who was uh, wrestling against Garvin for the Southeastern belt in the next match, right, he had Kevin up and ready for going to give him one of those inverted pile drivers. And all of a sudden, mm -hmm. there, out of nowhere, there's Blackwell standing right there ringside facing him. <laughs> uh, and uh, wow, that Coliseum literally shook, man, as soon as that crowd saw Blackwell. Uh, the invader dropped Sullivan. He didn't give him the, the, the pile driver, and he started toward Blackwell, who was still just standing there on the floor. He wasn't mm -hmm. coming after him. He's just standing there. And uh, Sullivan got up on his feet, man, and he hit the invader behind from behind with a perfect O'Connor roll, man. Wow. He rolled wow. him up and got a three count. The Coliseum roof came off, and uh, – just as quickly as he came, Blackwell was gone. He disappeared. Like, wow. how does a 450-pound guy do that? Right? What a great match that had to be. I wish I could have seen that one. That had to be really cool. Yeah, well, it wasn't over. You know, after Sullivan got his hand raised, then Root threw, threw Sullivan over the top rope. Uh, Malenko and the Invader both grabbed me, and, all, and they threw me outside of the ring. And then they all three went to Ken Lucas. And the invader uh, gave him an inverted pile driver, Ken. 
and after he gave him the pile driver, uh, the other two was keeping him, us on the floor. Bob Roop gave him a shoulder breaker. And then the great Malingo put him in, wow, the Russian, Russian, Russian sickle move, man. Wow, it was an extremely painful hole. And uh, finally, the two of us were able to fight our way back into the ring to stop him. But, wow, Ken was, Ken was really hurt, man. He was taken out on the stretcher, and he, he got carried to the hospital. Uh, and it was his last match ever in southeastern Knoxville. Wow. So all of, all of that happened after the match was over? It was Ken Lucas's last match in Knoxville, right? Right, it sure was, man. Wow. Uh, and and I always loved working with Ken Lucas. Uh, he was a class act, man. And and we got to be even better friends when he came to work for for us later in Southeastern in the early nineteen eighties. After all this nineteen seventy nine drama was behind us, you know. And uh, I couldn't figure out. What happened? What, you know why he wanted to leave, and I often wondered why he gave a notice that he wanted to leave Southeastern Territory at that particular time. You know, I, I kind of thought maybe he might have heard something that was being talked about, uh, maybe something that might be going to happen in the next couple of months. Mm. You know, and he, Ken, was always that type of straight up guy, man. I mean, he was. He was just rock solid, and uh, he'd be the type of guy that would leave a good spot, making good money, hmm. if he knew there was something bad about to happen, and he didn't want to be a part of it on either side. Wow. wow. So, wow. you know, that that's just now, and I don't know, I never had the conversation with him, but I always felt like he heard something. And, uh, and he heard something bad was about to go down mm. and he didn't want to, he didn't want to leave his friends. Uh, he didn't want to mm. do anything bad to, toward me. And he gave a notice and he left the territory. Wow. All right. So he was one of the wrestlers I most respected in the Gulf coast era. It's kind of a, well, it's really a shame that you have to be considering something like this, Ron. I don't think you deserved it. Well, it's a nasty subject, man, but, but it really happened. I can't deny it. And I, and I learned a lot from the experiences of all those bad things that happened in 1979. So uh, let's finish the main event uh, in the Coliseum that mm -hmm. same afternoon. The Southeastern Championship match between champion Ronnie Garvin and Bob Orton Jr. And I still have a lot of respect for Orton, man. Uh, how could he have wrestled in a wild 30-minute six-man tag brawl, man, and then come right back without a mask on and face a guy like Ronnie Garvin? I mean, well, wow, what kind of shape was he in? Uh, they went another 30 minutes in that match before Blackwell again showed up at ringside. Just as Orton looked like he was on his way to victory, too, over Ronnie. Uh, then Orton mm. took, the, took the Blackwell bait again. There he was, standing face-to-face -face with Orton again, and Orton took the bait. Garvin ended up uh, hitting him from behind, uh, set him up, jumped off the top rope in his throat, and uh, beat Bob Orton Jr. right in the middle of the ring. Wow. Um, it was a great night for fans, even though Crusher Blackwell never even got into the <laughs> ring. Never stepped into the ring, but they were excited just to see him standing by the ring. That's pretty. That's pretty amazing. All right, so how about the attendance for this one in the Knoxville Coliseum? Well, it was down a little more, Dave, than the week before 
when there was a cage match, it dropped about 200 fans. It went down to about 3,800, just below 4,000. It was the second week in a row, though, that Mobile had a larger crowd than Knoxville. Uh, that was uh, pretty telling to me. And I had another conversation with Rube about the five-match card deal, man, and what I thought about the first three matches and how weak those three matches were. And, uh, and I have no way of knowing if he intentionally was dropping the houses to set up his excuse later on that the wrestlers were unhappy with their payoffs due to somebody in the company stealing money. Uh, we all know now that it was just an excuse. There's no doubt about that. And I think Roop was already intent upon stealing the territory. I feel like, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that uh, my good friend, uh, my great friend uh, got a good got a good idea of what was going on, mm. and uh, and he decided to give a notice and not be a part of what was about to take place. Uh, you mentioned that you might tell us about how the Memphis territory was affecting the Knoxville talent situation, and also give us some idea of how they were drawing. Well, at this point, I, it had been almost two months since Rob was the first guy to leave Southeastern Gulf Coast to go to Memphis uh, and become the booker there. Uh, The Southeastern Gulf Coast territory uh, was much more affected by this move, this Memphis situation, than the Knoxville territory. And and, uh, we already talked about all the guys that left out of the Southeastern Gulf Coast to go to Memphis. But at this point, and so far as the Knoxville territory went, there was only three guys that had gone, and uh, that was Tor Tanaka, Mike Stallings, and Rip Smith. And, uh, you know, they all had been taken, uh, you know, by the Memphis Territory from Knoxville. But uh, when you look at it, there was a total of 11 wrestlers gone from Southeastern to, to work in the Memphis Territory. And uh, had I talked to Rob a great deal during this time frame, obviously with uh, – some of our great talent uh, now there uh, compared to what was in Memphis before we started to help them. The houses had really started to jump. You know, they were growing. And it normally took at least two months when you had new wrestlers to begin to see the gate pick up. And they were about at this two-month mark. And he told me everything that they had promised him. I asked him, how are they treating you? They're doing what they said they were going to do. And he said, they certainly are, Ron. He said, mm-hmm. uh, he said I'm, I'm, I'm figuring the payoffs just like they promised that I, they were going to let me do yeah. for every city. And I'm paying on our southeastern 28% pay scale just like we did uh, in Knoxville. And, uh, you know, he says, uh, and uh, the talent is, uh, they're all treating me great. Wow. Okay. So this has been a whirlwind of a stud cast, two tremendous TV shows, great matches in both territories. No doubt the introduction of the Hulk, the crusher Blackwell situation updates on the Memphis territory and more. So we're very sorry to say we don't have enough time to get to a learning tree question today. Hopefully we can get back to that because we We've really got some good ones coming up on the next stud cast. All right, folks on Facebook, go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud. Like and follow him there to become a friend with a living legend on Twitter. It's the same. Follow him on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch and follow him there as well to participate in all the stuff that's happening 
and whatever the stud is doing on Facebook and Twitter. Check out the website, tnstud.com, for Super Studcast, every Studcast ever done, and his stud story as well for all kinds of souvenirs. It's all there at tnstud.com and your personally autographed copy of the Brutus novel. The YouTube channel from Ron, Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. You got to check it out. Don't miss the exclusive YouTube Ask the Stud shows. Number one and two, great question and answer shows. Short rides with the stud are a huge hit also. A new one goes up every other day. YouTube's Southeastern Rewind is the gateway to ClassicContinentalWrestling.com, the stud's tremendous streaming channel. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com is where you find everything that is the Tennessee stud. There are now more than 200 hours of classic old-school TV shows from Gulf Coast to Southeastern to Continental to USA Wrestling, all in the order which they were recorded, and that's how it was meant to be. Plus, 18 chapters of Ron's audio version of his best-selling lion novel, Brutus, six stars of the sport, four superstars of the past, Wendell Cooley, Mongolian Stomper, Dirty White Boy documentaries are all there, too, and so much more. All of this for only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year. I'd pay it that way to get it knocked out. Plus, the free one-week trial is still available. That's ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. It's the best deal in wrestling. All right, stud, that's a lot. I don't see how you keep up with it. So where do we ride next week, Ron? Well, it's going to be fun, Dave. Uh, Crusher Blackwell is going to become a giant Canadian bumblebee, man. (laughs) Robert, (laughs) that's right, a giant Canadian bumblebee. Wow! No, because uh, because they, you know, he can't show his face. He's not going to be allowed to wrestle, or he loses his farm, man. So. uh, He's going to put a, he's going to become a bumblebee. Oh my God. Uh, Robert and Tony Charles are coming <laughs> from Memphis on the next big Knoxville card. We got a couple guys for coming out of Memphis to work in Knoxville. And, uh, we got, uh, obviously a TV title match on the television show. Uh, we'll be doing, uh, the results of these cards. And, uh, then, uh, the Hulk down South is going to make his first appearance around the entire Gulf Coast territory. It'd be the first time they've seen him in all those cities. And uh, and he gets his second TV win in the next show. And Norvell Austin and David Schultz begin a long program over the southeastern belt. Uh, and another complete Memphis card is going to be announced next week. And hopefully a learning tree question is going to be answered as well. Uh, and I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the ride today, and uh, please tell others about what we do here. And we appreciate everyone's support. Take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud. LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.